so good tonight to, to see you guys. I appreciate you being here. Thankful for how the Lord is speaking in these days and just the encouraging feedback that we've received. Uh, really am quite blessed to be with your pastor. Have uh, just uh, immensely appreciated our time together and prayer times in the morning. So uh, I've been the beneficiary of God's good hand in these days. Well, you'll remember last night as we looked into the book of Ephesians concerning Paul's prayer there in Ephesians chapter 3. During the preface or the introduction of the message, we talked about how vital it is to understand that what we have is a blessed listing of those gospel indicatives in chapters 1 through 3. And how they provide us an incentive, a motivation to fulfill the injunctions of Christ in those gospel imperatives in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And tonight we're going to move into the context of those gospel imperatives, but before I share, I want you to understand that as I relate God's truth to you tonight, I am not an expert in this particular area. We have a more sure word of prophecy that the truth of God stand, it does not need any help, but yet God has called us to exposit this truth. And so as I exposit in your hearing tonight, I walk with great fear and trepidation concerning my own role as a father and as a grandfather. The Lord has given me two sons and two daughters and four grandsons and four granddaughters And I'm very, very grateful for his kind providence in entrusting to me these precious children and grandchildren. But even at this very hour, all four of my children profess to know Christ as Savior. They attend a solid church. But I never rest on my laurels because I have no laurels to rest upon. It is the grace of God. But I would be quick to say tonight that I can identify with Job in Job chapter 1, verse 6, that he offered a daily sacrifice on the behalf of his sons, for he said, perhaps my sons have cursed God in their hearts. Even this very hour, there are things that I see, there are things that I sense in the lives of my offspring that give me great concern and motivate me to believe God to do a deeper work in the lives of my children as well as my little grandchildren. And so tonight I'm sharing with you from a position of great failure. And if I could say this, if I have any wisdom at all in what I'm about to share with you, it has come out of a lot of frustration and failure. Once again, I point to the Word of God. It is worthy for us to look upon It is certainly something that we must do everything we can to internalize in our life. And so, as I read the text tonight, which will be a very brief text, I want you to look at this precious gospel imperative that we see is given to fathers. Verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord For this is right. I think it's significant before we read any further that obviously the children were present in the assembly. For a portion of this epistle 
was directed to them. So they had to be there to hear. So here, as it's being read, it is directed to the children. He goes on to say in verse 2, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise. And you'll notice this is not conditional. We don't honor our father and mother because they are so good to us or they have provided for us so amply, but we're to do it as unto the Lord. And even though you may be the victim of some type of mental or emotional abuse, perhaps your parents were not there for you, it still does not negate your responsibility to honor your father and your mother, and the promise is that thy days may be long upon the earth. Now for the text this evening, verse 3. That it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline, the nurture, and instruction, or admonition of the Lord. Now, brothers, I think it's significant to know that you have two directives here. There's a positive command and there is a negative command. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. It means do not exasperate or do not create an adversarial relationship or an environment of contention. And then the positive admonition but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So he tells us, don't make the mistake of doing anything that would be a source of provocation that would engender strife and anger in your children. But observe also in the process of keeping the way clear. The communication lines open Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of our Lord Jesus. Now in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21, he tells us why these words are so important. That your children would not be discouraged. And the word discouraged there is that they would not lose heart or despair. Now, here's what I've discovered in my counseling, and Cindy and I have the opportunity on occasion to to counsel perplexed parents, fathers and mothers, because of wayward children. I'm not saying this is always the case, but much of the time it is. Many Christian parents do all that they can to provide every conduit possible for God to use to bring their children into a state of spiritual nurture. They make sure they're in church. They pray with their children. They pray for their children. They read them the Bible. They seek to bring their children into gospel exposure in a faithful way. Some parents will even go so far as to homeschool their children. 
These things are commendable. They are admirable. But oftentimes what aborts the nurturing link, the help of God through our nurturing efforts is the fact that we have wounded the spirits of our children. We have exasperated them and therefore they do not hear what we have to say. They turn a deaf ear to what we speak, to what we subject themselves to. So they equate these nurturing things with us. And if they are offended by us, if they're wounded by something that we have done as fathers, oftentimes that aborts the nurturing link. Think about it. Many parents see no fruit from their nurturing efforts. The reason is because dad or mom has consistently frustrated the child and caused them to lose heart. We know what the scripture says in Proverbs 18, verse 14, that the spirit of man will sustain him in his affliction, but a wounded spirit, a broken spirit, who can bear? Now, in this following message, I want to give 10 things that fathers do To provoke their children to wrath. That exasperate their offspring. Ten things that stir up anger and consequently cut off the lifeline of nurture. It was Henry Smith who said, Well doeth David call children arrows. For if they be well bred, they shoot at their parents' enemies. If they be evil bred... They shoot at their parents. Fathers are to be the prophet, priest, and king of their home. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11, it's interesting here that Paul says that he took on the role of a father in his relationship to the saints of Thessalonica. You recall the verse there. He says, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. You begin to meditate upon that context there and you find that Paul's disposition and deeds of love had a major impact on the believers in Thessalonica. They kept the lifeline of nurture Open so that when he ministered them, his efforts had a major impact. In the very context there itself, listen to the words in verses 7 through 10, as he goes on to say, But we were gentle among you, even taking on the demeanor of a nurturing mother, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing, notice that, affectionately longing for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become, there it is, the love, the overture of love once again, you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, We preach to you the gospel of God. Listen, you are our witnesses and God also how devotedly and justly 
and blamely we behaved ourselves among you who believe. That spoke volumes. Certainly he could encourage and admonish and have an impact upon these saints' lives because he took on the role of a caring father and a nurturing mother. That very disposition. There is something to glean from this in our lives as fathers. So there is no doubt in my mind that the apostle's kindness was used to give him a significant platform in these people's lives. And an approach such as this will make an impact on the lives of our own children. So let me proceed by giving you ten ways tonight that we can provoke our children to wrath. How do we create this environment of contention? I have been guilty sorely, brethren. This is why I walk before you in great humility and brokenness tonight. I have really exasperated at times my children. I brought them to a church years ago that was extremely moralistic. Of all things in this particular Baptist church which was not reformed. They were pro-homeschool, but the follower of this movement was more philosophical than biblical. And in this church, which is normally not the case in most of the churches associated with this group, we had a plurality of elders of all things. So it was added pressure on me as an elder in this congregation in Atlanta to make sure that everything was done properly because I had a few hundred people breathing down my neck. And they put a high premium on me making sure that I shared this philosophy that I was being taught and the people were being taught in an exemplary way. I fell miserably. And I have to say that the thing that probably I had going for me was the grace of God through the precious regenerating work of the Holy Spirit because I was quick to go back and acknowledge my sin to my children. Whether it was my anger or impatience or hypocrisy. So I'm not an ideal father. But once again, what we want to see tonight is what God tells us in his word. We can exasperate. We can provoke to wrath. And so here's the first thing. If you would, we're going to use our Bibles for the next few moments. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 37, verses 3 and 4. Now I remind you, as I said Sunday, you know, I use a hodgepodge of translations from Old King James, New King James, ESV, and NASB. So tonight, Genesis 37, verses 3 and 4. You remember the story, the relationship between Israel or Jacob and Joseph and his siblings. And here's the first way that even as he provoked his sons to wrath, that we can also... Create an environment of contention with our own children. It says in verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph 
more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. One way we negatively affect our children is through showing partiality. When we begin to display favoritism toward one child or perhaps two or three children over the others, we're sure to exasperate them. You'll note that Israel or Jacob, his problem was he loved Joseph. It was obvious that he did, so much so that he gives him this priceless piece of attire, this coat of many colors. I was traveling up to North Carolina from Atlanta many, many years ago now. Sometimes I would take just one child with me. And that particular weekend, my second son, Aaron, was traveling with me. So I tried to avail myself of the moment. I got real honest on occasion. We would have fun. We would laugh together. But there came a time during the route up there that it became very sober. And I looked over at my boy and I said, son, I want you to level with me. And I suppose at the time, Aaron was like 12, 13 years of age. I said, do you think that I show favoritism toward one of you kids over the others? And he thought very seriously for a moment. And then he said, Dad, I believe you love all of us the same. But I've noticed that you're a lot harder on Nathan than you are the other three of us. Now, Nathan was my oldest boy. He's the oldest child in the birth order. And in those days, I found myself putting undue pressure on him, expecting more out of him. And then if he failed, if he, if he messed up, you know, I was quick to react in anger because he should know better. And what's it going to do for him to display this type of an attitude or disposition or not following through on something I've charged him to do before his siblings? My son was right. I remember years ago reading the biography of A.W. Tozer. As much as we admire that giant in the faith, what a man of worship. What a man of wonder. He loved Christ. He followed Christ. We admire him. We quote him often. But there was a blight domestically on Tozer's life. He had six sons and one daughter. My understanding is the last one in the birth order was that daughter. Mr. Tozer's whole philosophy of parenting was it's mom's responsibility to take care of the boys. It's my responsibility to take care of the ministry. And so he would spend many hours traveling, pastoring, counseling. He was away from the home a great deal. Until one day his daughter, Rebecca, was born. Suddenly, even though he never changed his philosophy verbally, it changed in the way he lived before his children. He came home early in the evening. He spent time with Rebecca. She seemed to have charmed his heart. 
When she got older, you would find many times she would accompany her father to the church, play just outside his study. This engendered a great deal of frustration and even bitterness in Toza's boys. And if you study his life, you find that only one was soundly converted and went on with God. We don't know all the reasons for that, friend, but perhaps there was something sown there the boys did not understand. They saw the favoritism of the father toward this young girl. The Bible tells us in James chapter 2, verse 9, but if you have respect to persons, you commit sin. And could it be that the implication out of that is, is especially true in the domestic realm? And oftentimes we show favorites. We laugh about it today, do we not? Sometimes people post things on Facebook. But could it be that in our home, if we would seriously contemplate our relationship with our own, perhaps there's one person, one child in those that God has entrusted us with that we show favoritism above the others. Here's another thing I want you to see, another way we can exasperate our children. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, here's a relationship between Saul and Jonathan. The Bible says in verse 10, and it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. And he prophesied. The the Hebrew word prophesied there means to rave or he went into a rage inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times. But there was a spear in Saul's hand and Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David even to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. I think that anger oftentimes provoke our children to wrath. And anger can be manifested in different ways. It has many faces. Sometimes it may be reactionary behavior. Sometimes it may be loudness and animation of our very limbs. Sometimes it exudes as a reactionary spirit that can do great harm and wound our children. Sometimes it's in withdrawing from our children. We don't want to look at them. We don't want to talk to them. We leave them for a distance, set them aside at a distance and leave them for a while. Anger has many faces. Imagine concerning Saul for a moment. Your father attempting trying to kill your best friend. Then commanding you to take his life. This is what happened in his relationship with Jonathan. And then because you didn't honor his wishes, he sought to kill you. In 1 Samuel 20, verses 31 through 34, it says, For as long as the son of Jesse lives, Saul speaking, lives on the earth, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. 
It's interesting as you read on. In verse 34, it says, So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger. He ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. He provoked his boy to wrath. His anger incited anger in his son. I remember years ago being in a a series of meetings in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. And I preached on Sunday morning, the Lord helped me. Didn't really give an invitation, but people came and they knelt there at the altar. There were tears, there were brokenness. And then we moved to the invitation and the pastor came up, made some concluding remarks and then dismissed the service. That night people came back Normally we would never do this in the early part of a meeting or a crusade in those days, but we did it that night. Does anybody have a testimony? Does anybody have anything they'd like to share? Just a very small window of time in the service. We ask if anybody would like to share. Just like that, spontaneously, a number of people stood. And one man among that number confessed his anger. He said, I've been pouring my life into my little boy. I see him as an exceptional baseball player. And I've invested a great deal in him. Last night he was playing in a very significant game in his league. We as a family went to watch. It was 40 minutes away from the house. The score went back and forth between the teams. And we came up last at bat and won the game. All the parents and the people came out of the field to celebrate. Like many of the others, I hoisted my son up. I was rejoicing. We slowly made our way off the field, went out to the parking lot, got in the car, started home, and halfway home, my little boy spoke up and he says, Daddy, I forgot my ball glove. And he said, I'd invested quite a bit of money in this ball glove for my son. He says, I turned the car around in the road. I was so angry. He said, I called my son a number of names. You're an idiot. You're an ignoramus. And he said, all the way back, he said, I flayed him. We got to the ball field. Everybody was gone. The lights had been turned out. We went out. We went through the bleachers. We went out on the field. Feeling our way through that maze of darkness, we could not find the ball glove. And finally, he said in frustration, I said, let's get in the car. And all the way home, he said, I lambasted my son. When we got to the house, I told him to get inside and get to bed. I didn't tell him good night. I didn't pray with him. I just told him to get to bed. I was so frustrated. He said, this morning I came, God spoke to my heart, showed me how angry I was, showed me how wrong I was. He said, today when we went home, he said, I got with my son, I asked him to forgive me. And he said, this is what God showed me, 
How quickly can I replace the most expensive of ball gloves when I can't replace the soul of my son? Anger will provoke your children to wrath. The Bible tells us, does it not, in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God? And yet, friend, I I must confess to you at times I've tried to manipulate, particularly my sons, by getting angry at them with hopes that maybe I could change their character, change their behavior. It doesn't work. Never works the righteousness of God. Number three, here's another way you can exasperate them. First Samuel chapter 3 and verse 13. And that is through passivity or indifference. It is a relationship between Eli and his sons. And here God says, For I have told him, I have told Eli that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows. Because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. Didn't confront, didn't admonish, didn't discipline. He did not restrain them. It's interesting, brethren, the story stands as a living memorial of the danger of indifference. Eli's unrestraint of his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, Incurred a judgment. Note, we must not be passive in our duties of praying with, praying for, training, disciplining, confronting, and spending time with our children. The Puritan George Swinnick said, Some parents like Eli bring up their children to bring down their house. Whereas John Flavel said, if you neglect to instruct your children in the way of holiness, will the devil neglect to instruct them in the way of wickedness? No, he says. If you will not teach them to pray, he will teach them to curse and swear and lie. If ground is uncultivated, weeds will spring up. I remember being in Hartford, Michigan for a a series of meetings and girl came to me after the service one night. She was a married young lady, and she was telling me about her upbringing. She said, my family was very poor. My mom and dad had a large family. Basically had a little house, and we were so small at the time, all the siblings had to sleep in one bedroom. And she said, I being the oldest, I had the bed beside the door. My dad would come in late at night, and many times I would stay awake just to watch him come in. Normally he would open the door to our little house and come into our small living room without turning a light on because he didn't want to disturb anyone. And she said, as he walked down the hallway, I could see his silhouette. I could see his shadow as he made his way past our bedroom door. And we go to the end of the hallway in our one little bathroom. Close the door, and then I could see the light from my bed. I could see the light come on underneath the door. I knew what was going to happen. My father would pray. It was not casual prayer, Brother Don. 
He prayed earnestly and fervently each night. As late as it was, as tired as he was, he prayed every night there in the bathroom for us. At times he would wail before God and I would bear witness to his agony of spirit as he would intercede for me and my siblings. I said, well, tell me, how's the family doing? She said, I'm... I'm happy to report that all of my siblings are not only soundly converted, but they're very involved in their local churches. And I trace that back to the fervent prayers of my father. The story was told of one evening a small boy tried to show his father a scratch on his finger. Finally, after repeated attempts to snag his father's attention, the father stopped reading the newspaper and said impatiently, Well, I can't do anything about it, can I? And the little lad says, You could have said, Oh. You could have said, Oh. Thomas Watson said, Idleness tempts the devil to tempt. God's entrusted you with a priceless gift of children. And me with my grandchildren right now. I don't want to blow it. Let me just say this right here. There have been some good brothers of mine and, and good sisters who have availed themselves to these nurturing agents. Expose your children to these things aboundingly so over the years. And still though the children have gone amok spiritually. But the thing is, those fathers, those faithful fathers and faithful mothers, God has been glorified in their efforts in spite of the outcome of their children. But more often than not, friend, God uses these precious things that he's given us in his word as conduits for him to channel his conviction, his precious conviction through to give them repentance and faith in Christ. Don't blow it. Don't be idle. Fourthly, another way is through pretense or hypocrisy. And two things that I believe probably stir up an environment of contention among children more than anything else is anger and hypocrisy. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7, the Bible says that the righteous man walks in his integrity. In other words, there's a consistency there. Not just what he attests to as far as his belief, but that belief is embodied in a spirituality, in a walk that is just as consistent in secret as it is in public. And the outcome of that, the blessing is, the writer of Proverbs here says, the righteous man walks in his integrity, his children are blessed after him. It's true. It's true. I want to be very transparent with you tonight. We went over to Greenville, North Carolina, when we were living in Goldsboro, North Carolina, many, many years ago. My children were very small. We heard a young man preach and minister that night. God gripped my heart. I mean, it was one of those divine moments. God really brought conviction to my heart. When I gathered my small little flock, my little family, and we got in the car and started home, it was an hour drive back to Goldsboro. God just broke me, and I started confessing, acknowledging my wrong and how wrong I was. 
in my example before my kids. They were so quiet in the car. You say, well, was the reason it was, they were so quiet because it was so late? No, because they weren't used to hearing their father confess his sins. I got home that night, pulled on the driveway. We walked up the steps there in this little house that we're living in at the time. And when I opened the door and all the family came in, I just crashed there on the floor. And the kids were sitting on the love seat and the couch. And I continue to confess these areas of hypocrisy and my impatience, times my arrogance, my critical spirit. They were so quiet, they listened to me. And I said, kids, and I looked them, each one in the eye individually. And I said, kids, would you please forgive daddy? I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive daddy? They each one got up and they came over and they put their arms around me and hugged me. They said, Daddy, we forgive you. Daddy, we forgive you. I said, thank you. Thank you. And I prayed with them and Cindy went quickly to bed. We homeschooled our children. Nathan and Aaron at that time were somewhere around eight and seven years of age. That event had such an impact on my boys that the next day after their mother finished homeschooling them, they went back to their bedroom. They pulled out every toy out of their small closet. They stacked it neatly around the wall of the room because they know their daddy is a perfectionist. They wanted to impress daddy. They stacked these toys neatly around the wall in their room. And then they got a piece of paper and they made a prayer list and taped it up on the inside of the closet door. And then they got my flashlight. The closet didn't have a light on the inside of it. They got my flashlight and went into the closet that afternoon with their Bibles and closed the door. And they spent two hours praying, praying, going over that prayer list and praying and worshiping those little guys. And at the time, here's what God showed me. As goes the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our hearts as dads and granddads, so goes the sanctifying work of the Spirit many times in the lives of our children and our grandchildren. Don't miss it. That's the only thing, once again, brethren, that I had going for me in those days is the fact that God would deal with me so faithfully and convict me of my sin, and I would come before my wife and toward my children and say, please forgive me. I blew it. Pretense will incite anger in them. Number five, quickly, is prosperity. Not being content to live within the means of what God has given you. The Bible tells us, you remember there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, but those who desire to be rich, not those who are rich, sometimes God sovereignly can entrust people with riches. But it's those that have such an insatiable appetite, they're not content to live with the provision that God gives them. So they desire to be rich. 
They fall into temptation, Paul says, and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And could it be, friend, that a part of these many sorrows, plural, is the domestic repercussions of not being content to live within the means of what God has provided. The writer of Proverbs in chapter 15, verse 27, boy, this is powerful. Listen, he who is greedy for gain brings trouble to his family. One time I was up in South Waterboro, Maine. Pastor and I had wandered out in the churchyard and we were just talking, having a great time of fellowship. And he said, you see that house down the street there? And it was a two-story home. I said, yes, sir, I do. Just an old New England house. White paint. He said, I witnessed that man a number of times. He has religious interests. He says he's a Christian, but he said, I'm not sure that he is. He said, you know, he told me one time, he said, preacher, so my daughter just graduated from high school. And she just left for university. And I didn't even know her. I did not even know my daughter. I was so busy making a living. I worked a second and third job because enough was never enough and I did not know my own daughter. Number six, pride can exasperate. 1 Samuel 15, verse 17, you remember the story of Samuel? He's speaking to Saul. He said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Can it be sometimes, friend, that our own conceit, our own arrogance can hurt our children, bring woundedness, distort, obviously, the very image and character of God through our nurturing influence. One father in Ohio made this confession. I realized, Brother Don, at the end of this meeting that my kids don't need my money. They need a transparent daddy. But he said, all of my life, and especially since I've had my kids, I never confess my sin to them. Like a father in Oklahoma City. At the end of the service, once again, no manipulation. He and his boy came forward. They were there at the altar for quite a while. Pastor came up. He started to make announcements at the close of the service. The father and son are still there. They're weeping. And then suddenly they embrace each other. They go back to their seat. And the pastor said, does anybody have a word before we go home tonight? And the boy raised his hand. And he said, preacher, 
I just want you to know tonight I've heard my daddy do something I never heard him do before. He confessed his sin to me. He asked me to forgive him. And when he said that, friend, the boy was liberated. He never heard his dad confess his sin. And what keeps us from doing that? It's our pride. Our pride. I'll give you a few more here. Think about this. Preoccupation. Fathers, provoke not your children. Do not stir up an environment of contention. Do not create an adversary relationship with your children. And oftentimes we do it through preoccupation. So absorbed in our ministry. So absorbed in our work. So absorbed in taking care, accommodating the needs of others that we neglect our own. Some of you may not know him. I know many of you are homeschooling. But there was a man that I met years ago, precious brother. His name was Otto Koning. They referred to him as the pineapple man. He wrote the pineapple story. He had a son that was beginning to lose heart for Christianity. Started drifting. Went from bad to worse. No longer any interest for spiritual things. Otto was in big demand to go and speak in churches, not only in our country, but in various churches around the world. He did something that's kind of strange. At least it was at the time. Canceled all of his schedule. Moved his family to Nashville, Tennessee to be a part of a solid biblical church. And of all things, here is a very gifted minister that God was using greatly at the time. He left his ministry and got a job working third shift as a custodian so he could spend time with his son. He went home in the evenings, got up in the morning, targeting that boy, spent hours with him, investing in him, listening to him, playing with him, praying with him. God stirred the young man's heart. Suddenly he aggressively embraced the Savior again. Today he's a minister of the gospel. How many men would do that? I don't know if you heard the story or not. Arthur Gordon tells an interesting experience from his youth. He said, when I was around 13 and my brother was 10, father promised to take us to the circus. But at lunch, there was a phone call. Some urgent business required his attention downtown. He said, my brother and I braced ourselves for the disappointment. Then we heard him say, no, I won't be down. It will have to wait. When he came back to the table, mother smiled. She said, the circus keeps coming back, you know. Father said, I know. But childhood doesn't. My, 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 my dear friend Paul Washer has so many fathers said, Paul, can we kind of hang out? said, I got my boys and you got your boys. Can we hang out? 
And he said, I'm very gracious, but I decline. Because he said, I know that if I go out with that father, with his boys, I'm not saying that it won't have redeeming value, but it's going to take away from my time with my boys. In our part of the country, SEC football is a big thing. You come to my neighborhood, it's Alabama-Auburn, Alabama-Auburn, Alabama-Auburn. All the paraphernalia, all the flags, all that stuff. In a church one time in Ohio, God broke this father over his idol of football. Told me later, he said, you know how God did it? And I said, no, sir, what? He said, I'm sitting there watching my Ohio State football game. And my little three-year-old comes over and stands in front of the television and puts her hands on her hips like this and cocks her head to the side and says, all right, Daddy, that's enough football. Now it's time to play with me. You've heard of G. Campbell Morgan. One occasion, a perplexed father who has been losing the interest of his 12-year-old son Asked him, said, what can I do? He don't want to spend time with me. What can I do to, to snare his attention and, and respect once again? And you'd think that that man, that expositor, G. Campbell Morgan, would have given him some outstanding biblical answer. He just simply looked at the father and said, have you ever tried a game of marbles? Sometimes, friend, I found that my boys and my daughters didn't need my theology. They just needed my eyes. They just needed my conversation. They just needed my presence. Number eight is perfectionism. And you're looking at that dude. I've made things miserable for my wife and my children many times over the years because my whole philosophy, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And it's like one day in prayer, God made it so clear to me. He said, Don, I don't expect that from you. I want you to do everything that you do for me in the way of ministry or in your walk with me with a whole heart. But even if it doesn't turn out perfect, I want you to know I'm pleased with you. Gentlemen, number nine is possessiveness. Controlling your children. Think about this for a moment. We're almost through. A controlling father who gives his children no room to breathe may so exasperate them as to frustrate the purposes of God in their life. Anger, a critical spirit, fear, or isolation oftentimes is employed to manipulate the child. We get mad at them. We get angry. We withdraw from them. We're critical. We make them the object of contempt to manipulate them. Saw this in Blaine, Maine. Father had a large family. The kids were grown up. Growing up. He spent no time with them. He was consumed with his job. And then on Sundays, Saturday was a work day. And on Sundays, 
He made him stay indoors. Don't want you to hang out with your friends. Don't want you to spend any time playing. You're to stay right here. But he didn't take advantage of that. He didn't spend time with them. He just confined them and made them stay because of his view of the Sabbath. They didn't follow the Lord. One more thing tonight is pessimism. Think about this for a moment. Some parents are dangerously inclined to dwell more on the negative than the positive in their children's lives. Children, whether it's athletics or academics or even spiritual values, they never measure up to the father's expectation. It's always, you could have done better. So the response to their child's accomplishment is not met with a round of applause or affirmation, but a round of what they could have done to improve their performance. It's unbearable, brothers. Unbelievably so. So I see today, you know, this is a growing plague, a problem in our land, and especially, sadly, in many of our churches You have no idea, but this is one of the major culprits of hurt and breakdown in the spirit of marriage today is you've got fathers who are, while they might pride themselves that they don't believe in headship abuse or what we would call hyper-patriarchy, yet that spirit still influences their lives and they're very controlling men. And they do it with their children. Their children are pawns to advance their kingdom. When fathers know nothing of what it is to be a servant to their children. Yes, God charges you to make decisions. Yes, God charges you to lead them. Yes, God charges you to give them injunctions and commandments. Listen, brothers, don't misunderstand me. But we need to do it with a spirit of humility. The best way to lead is on your knees. Even better on your face. For as John Bunyan says, he that is down need fear no fall. Lead in humility. So what's the concluding remark tonight? Dads, do not provoke your children to wrath. But bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's a good thing that you have them in church. It's a good thing, perhaps, that you're homeschooling them. It's a good thing that you use a Christ-centered curriculum, whether it's in your devotional time or whether it's in your homeschool. It's a good thing to pray with them and play with them. But listen, friend, do not, in the process of fulfilling the positive admonition Overlook the importance of observing the negative admonition. Do not provoke them to wrath. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you may be pleased to use this in the hearts of us all. 
Lord, these days, I pray that we would walk humbly before our God, that we would learn not only to listen to our children verbally, but listen to their heart. God, build our relationship. Enable us to be good stewards. To be diligent, Lord, in not provoking, but equally diligent in nurturing. Please, O oh God, help our homes turn our children's hearts to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. We ask in the strong name of Christ. Amen.